Welcome to Inflection Points, where in each episode we talk about the pivotal moments in the careers of tech leaders that help them navigate a new path to growth. My name is Joe Hine, and in this episode we speak with Gina Ledniak, CEO at LNA Social, Australia's premier social media agency. You'll love this one because we discuss how Gina's entrepreneurial roots came from the adversity of her emigration, how using the philosophy of Buddhism can bring commercial success, understanding ceilings of complexity and why they are important, and building a business that is easy to acquire. From SI Partners, this is Inflection Points. My guest today is Gina Ledniak, and she's been on quite a journey. She started life in the USSR before emigrating to New York, then emigrating again to Sydney, where she founded one of Australia's pre-eminent social agencies, LNA Social. And along the way, she's won multiple awards as a business leader. As CEO of LNA Social, she steered brands like TEDx, Volkswagen and Ferrari to remarkable success. She's passionate about female advocacy, ocean conservation and creating impactful company culture. Last year, she successfully sold LNA Social to Tag Worldwide, expanding their global reach and capabilities to enable her to fulfill her ambitions for the agency. Gina Ledniak, welcome to Inflection Points. Amazing. Thank you so much, Joe. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. So dive straight in. You've got a fascinating backstory. Growing up in Belarus before moving to New York when the Soviet Union collapsed. How old were you at the time and what do you remember about moving to New York? So, great question. So I was five years old. Wow. Um, obviously, you know, it's, it's all very blurry. I remember getting on a bus, driving through the snow, getting onto an airplane and seeing salad for the first time. I like vividly remember green salad leaves that I'd never seen before um, on the airplane and just thinking, huh, what is this? Wow. New dawn. Yeah, new dawn. And then um, landing in New York City, it was, you know, we, we were really lucky. We we escaped Belarus as um, with I think it was pol- called political asylum. And we landed in a shelter in Harlem. And we were very close to kind of, you know, my family saying, hey, did we make a mistake? And it was Christmas time in New York. And I just vividly remember the smells and the sounds and how beautiful that whole Central Park area was. And that first couple of days, we went for a walk and the smell of roasting chestnuts in New York Christmas time was just magical. And I remember my family saying, my dad particularly saying, well, a country that smells this good cannot be <laughs> bad. We have to stay here. <laughs> and it must have been quite a cultural shock. I mean, I know you were quite young still at the time, but, you know, to to take it, but but not just for yourself, but I guess as a whole family. How did you sort of find yourself and embed yourself into the new culture? It was interesting because I think everyone treated it with a really great sense of humor. And there were some funny moments on the way, like, you know, we had the first Christmas was in the shelter and the shelter workers told us, oh, if you leave stockings out on the door, Santa leaves you presents. And obviously we'd been living in communism. So I remember in the middle of the night when everyone went to sleep, taking my mom's silk pantyhose and hanging them literally <laughs> over the door and thinking, oh, this is a weird tradition, but if you get them, if you get presents out of it, okay, I'll give it a go. Yeah, exactly. So it was, it was full of funny little moments like that. And then, you know, not so funny ones. Like we were only allowed to leave with $500. 
um, U.S. and jewelry. And in that first couple of months, we actually got robbed. So it was, you know, there were some really great moments where you had funny stories and silly, silly little things. And then some pretty big moments where I think the whole family questioned, hey, how are we going to do this? But that was part of what really led me on my business journey was seeing that perseverance and that resilience and the fact that there's there's no other option. You, you just have to keep going. You have to keep doing it and you have to make it. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the things I think I heard you say before is that your parents didn't speak much English. And therefore you had a more prominent role in family life and, and in your life, I guess, as, as needing to, to be the interpreter, but also to, to, to drive yourself forward and, and, and create opportunities. Yeah. And I think that was, that was actually my favorite thing of, of how we got to grow up. I see it as a great privilege that I was able to do that. Um, but we, when we moved it, kids pick up language so quickly. So for me, within the first year I became fluent in English, my parents were learning, but they were working 24 seven. So they were working nights cleaning at a kindergarten while redoing their degrees and doing other jobs in the daytime. So very much, it was me and my grandparents together 24 seven, they raised me, their English was non-existent. So anything that I wanted for myself, anything that they needed help with from doctor's appointments to really anything, I, I would be the one organizing and facilitating. And I even remember when I was 10, I saw an ad for a summer camp and I thought, oh, I really want to go there. And I remember calling, negotiating a discount because we had zero money, <laughs> you know, negotiating a little scholarship there, organizing how to get there, organizing what I was going to do. And wow. then my family getting home and me saying, hey, I've organized it. I'm going to the sleepaway <laughs> camp. They gave us a scholarship. We're all good. <laughs> but it really taught me to talk to people of all ages and never feel that someone was better or worse or whatever, mm. you know, ev mm. everything just became around communication. Mm. And it, I guess it's taking responsibility very early in your life that you couldn't rely on other people, not, not for sort of love and care, but actually just for, for, for life because they weren't able to support you in, in the way without having the language barriers. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's quite a, it's quite a start. Yeah. One of the best lessons I learned early on was how to communicate with adults, but more importantly, how to communicate with people in all demographics of of any kind of diverse backgrounds. And I think when I started out in business, that was the thing that served me the best was the fact that I, I never felt even an ounce of fear. I could call a CEO of a huge company or I could sit in any any kind of meeting and I, I wasn't afraid to approach people. And that was purely because of being pushed to do that growing up, that by the time I got to the point where I was doing it for myself as an adult, I was so used to doing it that it just felt like second nature. It's sort of a, a mixed blessing, it, um, you know, or the silver lining, if you like, from that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and how did that sort of your, your time in New York sort of shape your philosophy and, and how you've gone about business? Um, I, I think you had a time when you were a sales consultant for a while. Yeah. Um, and you know, how, how did, how did this sort of shape your, your, your time in New York shape you? 
Well, the the sales consultant job, I think it lasted about eight weeks before I got fired. Um, And (laughs) one of the pieces of feedback they gave me was, can you please pop the bubbles in your voice? And I thought, oh, my God, I never want to work anywhere where they want you to pop the bubbles and the happiness in your voice. And (laughs) (laughs) it's funny, actually, I think my time in New York really framed what I went on to do for two reasons. One, for anyone that's been to New York, especially around Wall Street and how Wall Street was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you would walk around the streets and you would see people that look incredibly busy brushing past each other. No one's looking at each other. No one feels engaged with life. They just feel like they're in their own bubble. And I remember thinking when I first came to Australia that there has to be a better way. There has to be a way that you could do work that you love and you could become successful, but you do it in a way which actually adds value and brings joy and brings happiness and helps the world around you. That it, That isn't so self-centered and doesn't just rely on this ethos of working yourself to the bone and not actually enjoying life. So that, that was really the first thing. And that inspired my ethos for wanting to even go into business. And the second thing, and one thing I always talk to young people about is that I, w- I was always a bit of a wanderer, so I never had an idea of what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I would kind of give things a go, see if they stuck, move on to the next thing, and kind of just followed, you know, followed little signs from the universe. So if something was going well, I would keep doing more of it. If something hit a roadblock, I'd say, okay, maybe it's time to pivot and try something different. Um, and I think in my early 20s, that probably came off as seeming a little bit directionless to people around me that were starting careers at big corporate companies. And, you know, I went to a really great engineering school. Most of the people around me were starting really great engineering jobs and finance jobs in New York. And I was kind of floating. But to me, I was exploring. I was trying to see what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And I wasn't too stuck with one career direction. I thought, I'll find what gives, gives me flow and gives me joy and I'll follow that. Mm. That idea of flow is really interesting as a, uh, as a sort of philosophical concept. Um, it's a lot of what, what a lot of sort of mountain climbers talk about and that just being present, being in the moment and just, you know, enjoying what you're doing rather than, um, perhaps needing some higher direction, just a very different way of, in, 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 of looking at life. Yeah, completely. You mentioned in there about, um, moving to Sydney and it kind of brings us to our first inflection point and in 2007, at the tender age of 21, you moved to Sydney on your own with no savings. Um, what drove you halfway across the globe? Well, so in college, I was lucky enough to study abroad in in Sydney mm. for a semester. And I remember stepping off the airplane, seeing my first, you know, palm tree out in nature ever. And the I, I can't even describe it. The, the minute my foot touched the sidewalk, I remember thinking this is my place. This is where I'm going to live. And it was just this weird energetic connection of, you know, feeling that this is my home for whatever reason, I'm going to live here. Mm. And there was a bus that picked up all of the study abroad students and the instructor that was kind of, you know, introducing us to Sydney said, there's always one person that falls in love with Sydney and moves back. And I turned to my roommate at the time and I said, that's going to be me. 
And lo and behold, you know, I think it was week one there. I took a photo of the Tamarama sign, which for anyone not from Australia, it's, I'd say, one of the world's most beautiful beaches. Um, took a photo of the sign outside of Tamarama and said, I'm going to move here and I'm going to live right outside of this bus stop. And two years later, it's exactly where I moved, lived right outside the bus stop for a couple of years. And I, I was pinching myself. But there was there is a beautiful freedom in Sydney, but I think there's also a beautiful freedom in going far away from the place where you grew up, where you could actually make decisions unencumbered and explore and really take some time to find yourself. Mm. And was it much fear as you, as you moved? I mean, it, did you know you were always going to stay or was it a temporary movement uh, in the first instance? It was, it was always going to be temporary. So I always thought I'll go for a year, I'll experience it, and then I'll move back to New York. Um, I ended up going for a year, which became two and three years. And it was right when the GFC hit as well. So timing-wise, you know, it didn't make sense to go back to New York. I think the GFC yeah. hit within that first year that I had mm. actually left. 2008, so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it was actually interesting because when I first moved, everyone said, hey, you're crazy. Why Why are you moving? You went to a great university. All of your connections are here. All of your friends are here. Your family is here. And then a year later when the GFC hit, people said, oh my God, you had so much forward thinking to get out of New York, yada, yada. And it just <laughs> made me realize, you know, you, you really just have to go to the beat of your own drum yeah. Um, there's a really great book actually, that's been the book that's guided me the most in my career and it's called the diamond cutter and it's about the okay. Buddhism of life and business. And it talks a lot about that concept that, you know, the, the only right decisions are the ones that you make for yourself. Um, and people will always say, oh, you're brilliant. Or that was a terrible idea. You're, you know, you're crazy just depending on the outcome, but the outcome is, is always going to be the outcome. Yeah. Exactly. And then roll forward a few years, you started LNA Social, um, which went on to become, or is still is, uh, you know, Australia's leading social media agency. What inspired you to start the company? What's, what's the founding story? It's, it's actually a funny story because, so when I was going into university, the Facebook was just launching and I went to Boston University. We were one of the first universities to kind of trial, to get invited to trial the Facebook. And growing up in Brooklyn, communities really formed on street corners. So, you know, there's so much multicultural, beautiful, like beautiful cultures everywhere. And you would walk down the road and you would see grandma sitting on the corners, grandpa sitting on the corners, kids playing. And there was just this beautiful feeling of life and communities. And social networks started coming out. Probably it was about four years before the Facebook was actually launched. There was Friendster, there was a small world, there was all these kind of micro communities. And I just became fascinated with how they were replicating that street corner feel with a broader demographic, a broader community. So when the Facebook launched, you know, no one expected it to become as big as it was going to be. Um, I used it at university. I went on to study psychology. And when I moved to Sydney, I actually started an adventure dating company. That was my, okay. you know, my passion was connecting people, communities yeah. in one way or another. And I loved adventure. I loved the outdoors. So I was doing that company and I was using social media to promote that company. And I started having companies come to me and say, hey, can you help us with social? So 
I start, I was doing both. I was basically using the money from social media consulting and funneling it into the dating company. And one day, I think I'd had such a difficult day. You know, we were running a live event. Some, like half the people had canceled. I was really sick, but I still had to go. And I remember sitting down on Tamarama Beach Um, going down to the beach there and just sitting there crying and then having this aha moment of, you know, I talk so much about flow and following signs of where, where life is trying to take you. Yet here I am running to try to make this business successful. That is not giving me any reinforcement, not really going in the right direction. And I've got people banging down the door to try to do social media with me when no one else in Australia is doing social media. And from that moment onward, I realized, hey, I'm going to go down the social media direction because my why and my purpose is to connect people. It's to create a place to work where people get to be their best and learn, maybe fail occasionally, learn about themselves, grow as individuals, leave things better than we found them. And the business through which I do that has to be the right channel to grow and be able to create that impact. And that's not going to be this company. It's, it's going to be social media. Mm -hmm. And there's some really interesting concepts in there about the culture of business. And I guess going back to the book, you mentioned about sort of Buddhism and that concept of flow, which again, I said, it's something I find very, very interesting as well. How does that sort of manifest itself in LNA social such, because you've got to perhaps some, there's some tension between profit and a lot of those kind of concepts. What, how do you kind of overcome those? It's, it's such a good question because I actually found that the thing that set us apart from the beginning and what led us to be so profitable was actually the culture. And a lot of times people asked, how, how do you make the culture what it is? And I would tell them the things that we do and they would say, cool, we're going to do that. But I think that deeper understanding of what makes a culture a culture is is what actually creates a really profitable business. And that's really starting with the why and what your purpose is, and then thinking about how does that manifest as the culture and what are the culture habits that we could do every day to get us to the point where we need to be. And I, I do really believe that that why and that purpose needs to come from the founder or the leader in whatever capacity that is, but then the culture and the habits need to come from the people. That's where it's a marriage between all of the individuals that are in the organization. And that's how you really create a movement when you have a team of people is having that buy-in. It's not kind of what the individual actions are, but it's how you actually come up with them together and how they ladder up to your purpose and your why as well. And those don't always have to be, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that those things aren't all about us as individuals. They're actually things like, you know, are we firm believers in leaving things better than we found them? And if that's the case, like it is for LNA, for example, um, how does that come to life? And it doesn't have to be something that's self-serving for me or the, or the team members. It could be something where we decide, Hey, we're passionate about leaving a positive impact in our community. So for us, we choose a nonprofit that we support 
every quarter. Um, we donate time and money. We're also really conscious about the content that we post on social media and the way that we work with brands and making sure that it's done in a really ethical way. So it's kind of creating little habits and ways of working, which ladder up to your why, which yes, you know, make daily life fun, obviously, like there needs to be that sense of fun and yeah. play, but I think yeah. there also needs to be that deeper purpose in what we're doing as well. Yeah, you, with such a purpose-driven organization, and you you touched on it there about, um, you know, kind of the, the charities you support and the causes that you like to support, um, you, how has that affected the business decisions you make, particularly around clients and um, who you'll work with as an organization? Have you had to compromise at all? Um, it's a really interesting question because we, we are foremost a business. And one mm -hmm. of the things I always talk to team members about is we prioritize how we add value to the world, right? And how we want to leave things better than we found them. And for us to be able to make change, we need to be profitable and we need to be growing and we need to be able to support our team and the salaries. And we want people to grow as well, which obviously, you know, that comes with an investment in people. So for us to be able to do that, we need to be client first and we need to service clients. We need to be thinking about clients. We need to be thinking about the numbers and the business foremost, which then allows us to do the good work. Um, saying that our, our rules always been, we want to work with people who want to do great work, who are good people. Um, you know, we don't want to be in a position where someone's miserable coming to work. So I would say it's not so much a compromise, but we are probably more about the individuals that we work with rather than the actual type of business that we work with. So we do have things that we don't go near. So, you know, things like, um, gambling, we don't go near betting, things like that. But at the same time, um, we also work with alcohol brands, which, you know, alcohol is, is also harmful to people in some regards. So for us, it's more about the individuals that we work with and, and making sure that we align on values and how we want to do the work together. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, uh, yeah, it's, 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 how is that those individuals and those brands approaching, the responsibilities that they have as, as, as an organization rather than sort of a, you know, a blanket view on some of this stuff. Um, yes. And cool. also, um, I think play, you know, play in the workplace is, is so mm -hmm. important. I think that sense mm -hmm. of play and discovery is it's what makes working fun for people. It's what makes me pumped to go into work every day. Yeah. And I think working with clients who relate to that, who just basically want to do really amazing work and make an impact. And sometimes that could just be making a really fun campaign that brings joy and makes people smile and wins a few awards. And even, even that in itself is just, is just a lot of fun to do as well. Absolutely. Um, as a business, every business grows, they go through, several milestones. What have been some of the key moments during the, your journey with LNA? There's been some highs and lows. And, you know, it's interesting. We were the first social agency to start in Sydney. And when we were starting, there was quite a few other people starting at around the same time. Um, but the interesting thing that happened is as, as moments in time got hard, they kind of stopped. Um, you know, that point where it's just you and maybe you and one other person freelancing or whatever it might be, that's kind of the hardest moment. And it's so easy to give up when you're going through that. I think that if you could just keep going and persist, you, you'll end up successful. I think success is mostly just 
continuing and being persistent over anything else. Yeah. Um, Cause most people <laughs> do tend to give up at some point when you get tired and you say, I've just, I've had it. Yeah. So I think probably the first, the first point was those first couple of years where, you know, you're trying to figure out how do I legally employ people in a foreign country when I'm not even a citizen? How do I, you know, figure things out like superannuation, which is our retirement plan, just so many things over and above the normal, the normal client work, which you have to figure out on running a business. And there was a moment where I decided I'm just going to, I'm invested in this business and I'm going to invest in educating myself. And throughout my career, I've done every business course I could find. I've joined every, you know, business organization I can, because I think you just, you have to keep learning. Um, but in those first few years that really carried me through. Was there a moment where you sort of, you thought you'd made it, you've gone through those early years and you kind of go, do you know what? this is it. We're, we're, we're off. We're, we're here. Um, what was that moment for you? Well, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. Cause we've had that about three times. Okay. And throughout all those three times you end up then in a ceiling of complexity. You know, you go, I think the, the life cycle of a business is you go sweet spot and then you grow a little bit more and you enter into the next cycle of complexity where everything breaks, you have to rebuild it and you have to put it back together again to operate at that next size. So for us, that happened first at seven people. I think us operating at seven people, we were really happy. Things were smooth. I knew everything that was going on. Um, we then hit our first kind of ceiling of complexity and life just absolutely sucked until we got to I think it was about 12 people and then life was great again. Then we got to 17, life sucked again. Then we got to 22, life was great again and so on and so on. So I think there's these moments in, you know, whether it's how many team you have or what your revenue and your turnover is, where you do have to make sure that you consciously take the business apart and put it together. So each time that I've felt like we've made it, I've also known that what's around the corner is chaos. And that I'll need to work through that chaos with my leadership team. I'll need to look at the business and say, hey, how do we restructure this and get us to the next level? And then we'll have a year or two of happy days and then we'll have to do it all over again. And I think that's that's just the case of any business is you have to keep thinking of how you rebuild it um, and how you keep evolving. I think that's a really interesting concept is almost being so conscious of that. What did you call it? A ceiling of... Uh, I, I call it a ceiling of complexity. So you yeah. get to a point where your current business can no longer handle the size of revenue that you're putting through it. And yeah. you need to think of your structure again and, and restructure to be able to handle it. Yeah. That ceiling, that concept of ceiling of complexity, but also being very conscious that you're going to have to keep doing this. So, you know, we're good for a while, but then we're going to have to go again and, and being okay with that and being comfortable with that. And needing, knowing that you need to keep learning that, you know, you haven't made it. You, this isn't the end of the journey. It, it is a continuous roller coaster of, of business and business life. Yeah. Which, which brings us very nicely to the, to the next inflection point. In 2022, LNA Social was acquired by Tag Worldwide, an exciting inflection point for any company. How did the acquisition come about? Well, I started to think about getting acquired when, we had, I think we were about 40 people and we were in a really, really good place in the Australian market. 
you know, it, it was in the happy days of the company. It was where we felt like we had everything sorted. Um, things were running really smoothly. And I thought our next step is to start to grow internationally. Um, we could do one of two things. We could start to grow internationally or we could increase our scope of services. I knew that we didn't want to increase our scope. Our, you know, the great part about our business is that we were very niche. That made it really profitable, um, meant that we could build really good systems, meant that we could really be the thought leaders. As soon as you add more services into that, obviously, every, everything gets watered down. I've also felt very nervous. Like I, I'm the sole founder, so it's it was just me. I thought if I launch internationally and something goes wrong, I'm putting not just my own livelihood at risk, but I'm putting 40 people's livelihoods at risk. And at that point, you know, we had people with families, we had people that were starting their careers, we had people that moved to the country for the job. There was, you know, there's a lot of people and I'm they're so dear to me and a lot of them are still with us today. And I I didn't feel comfortable making the decision to risk the company to basically fulfill a continuous growth obsession that I've got. <laughs> so I started thinking about different partners and at the same time actually started talking to SI advisory who was absolutely brilliant, um, really, really good in guiding the journey. We had started to get approached by companies just from being out there in the market. So, you know, we had a really good brand presence in the market. Um, I went down kind of the chemistry meeting route with a couple of companies before appointing an advisor and just something wasn't sitting right. I just thought just something didn't feel right. We weren't aligned on values. I felt like I was kind of shooting in the dark. Um, it was a bit, it was a bit like learning to date from, you know, from scratch. All of a sudden you're like, well, what am I meant to do? Am I meant to email? Are they meant to email? How does this work? <laughs> what are they thinking? Do I ask? Um, and then I decided to sign on SI because I thought this is, you know, the most important decision in my career life to date. And, I wouldn't try to operate on myself. I'm not going to try to to do this on my own. Um, and I think one of the things SI did really, really well at the beginning was identify what was important to me. And for me, having a really good cultural and values alignment was really great. Um, we're an agency, but we're not. We prided ourselves on being very, very operationally strong um, very profitable, but we were very, very numbers driven as well as purpose and values driven, which is really rare in an agency. And what we were finding is that a lot of larger agencies that we would catch up with were all around, you know, there, there's a time and place for this, but they were very different to us. They were all around kind of things like the big idea and creativity, but it was all very woo-woo. We were a very good, solid business. And I thought, I want to partner with someone who is also obsessed with operational excellence and through that does good work. Not 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 a company that starts with kind of the airy-fairy stuff and then figures out how to make it happen. I wanted to start with structure because that's that's our culture and that's how we've succeeded. So for us to go to the next level, we need to join someone that's aligned with us. And SI did a really great job of really listening to that and introducing us to partners who would understand that and value that. Um, and the company that we ended up meeting 
is someone that we never, ever would have come across on our own. Um, we never would have met them. We'd never come across them in the market. But when we did when we did meet them, it was kind of, you know, it was like meeting your soulmate. We were like, wow, you guys get it. You're obsessed with operational excellence. You operate like we do. You're agile. Um, you know, you have an entrepreneur mindset, even though you're a huge business. And yeah, it was, it was just a fit. Having been in quite a lot of chemistry meetings with with um with clients and 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 buyers you, you kind of know when it's right which is a bit like dating sometimes you meet someone you're like okay right you know i know i like you yeah um and 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 there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallels to that and it's it's quite a uh it's there's quite a cool meeting to walk away from and and kind of go do you know what I, you know this this feels good let's let's talk some more let's see where this can go um what what were your sort of key learnings from from the experience? You know, because it's you sound like there was there was a lot of conversations, and you know, um, so you've had quite a good good level of experience. What, what did you take away from it? I think my probably my biggest learning is I I the last couple of years before we got acquired, I had it on my head that whether we decide to go down that route or not, I should build a business that is a good solid business that is going to be easy to acquire. And that meant a couple of things. It meant not having a business that is, you know, deathly reliant on the founder. Um, I think a lot of times, especially with agencies, as a founder, you are really involved across all areas of the business. And that makes it hard to find a good partner because the business doesn't operate as a business. It operates, you know, just as an extension of yourself. Um, there was a bunch of things I did in the years leading up to us getting acquired that strategically meant that it was either going to be a, a great business to run and scale, or it was going to be a really great buy for someone, a really great partnership buy for someone. Um, so the biggest learning is start a couple of years before and whether or not you want to get acquired, it's that you're actually a much healthier business when you're in a good position to get acquired, you know, and you're thinking about your numbers obsessively. Um, when you're trying to think of ways to free yourself as the founder up from being in the day-to-day -day and being reliant on, you know, being needed for everything. So that was a really huge lesson. Um, the second big lesson is, is just to trust your gut. I think that it's, it's a really stressful process that you go through. Um, I think you need to trust your gut and you also have to trust your advisors that, that they will guide you in the right direction. So I think choosing the right advisor is really, really important. Um, we met with a couple and I think me making sure that you're with someone that doesn't have a big ego so that you could have those open conversations with them and, you know, tell them what you really want and not be afraid to kind of be open and, and things like that in conversation, really important. So making sure that you get on, um, and then someone that really knows your industry. That trust is really important with your advisor, um, because you, you need to align on what's on what's the best interests. You're trying to give us looking out for what, what's the best interest for you. And, you know, you need someone that's going to be in your corner and, and support you with that. And I'm glad that we could, we could help you out there. Um, and how's it been post-sale now? You've, it's been uh, coming up for a, a year maybe now. Yeah. Um, and uh, has it helped with sales? Yeah. You know, how's it been working with tax? It's been fantastic. And that was, you know, that was something I'm so glad we did at the beginning. We did a lot of meetings together. You know, we talked through everything before we finalized the deal. We talked through, 
how we would integrate. Um, we talked through how, what we're aligned on and what we would need to kind of work through. We talked through our systems and processes and we basically, we covered so much before we actually joined that by the time that we joined, we were able to really jump into integration and jump into working together really, really quickly. And that made the difference that just made a huge difference. And I know they've made acquisitions, before and obviously it was the first time for us but i think this has been one of the quickest integrations because of all the pre-work that we did and also because going into it us and them have both been really really open with saying hey let's take the best of both worlds like let's make sure that this is a really great marriage of product um something that's really good for our clients and let's do it as quickly as possible and i think the other thing that's been really interesting for us, and this was something that we looked at, was looking at the compatibility of the service offerings. Because for us, at least, we we perfectly fit like a glove in terms of what we were doing into their offering. And their offering really helped our clients expand as well. So it just meant that once we joined, we were able to pitch their services into our clients. And we got a lot of new work working with them um, but there was none of that, you know, funny friction or competition that you might get if you did the same thing. No, is it getting the the right fit? Being a a new capability for a buyer in a, in a geography can be really powerful as a as, as a combination, of, and that's where kind of the success can come from. So um, it's great to hear. I, I want to move on to sort of another uh, important part of your life, and you're a huge promoter of female advocacy. How do you believe the marketing and advertising industry can further support and empower women in leadership roles and create more diverse and inclusive landscape? I think there's probably two ways that we could really help nurture that. One is by looking equally favorably upon the masculine and the feminine traits because they're, they both have so many great things to offer, but they are very different. And when you have a female leadership style, it's easy to look at the masculine one and say, well, that doesn't work and vice versa. So I think being really respectful of those different leadership styles and understanding the benefit that they bring to the workplace and knowing in yourself how you could kind of foster a bit of both because you, you need that kind of yin and yang. Um, the second thing I think is really... I. I think looking at not the loudest voice in the room, but the more capable voice in the room. And the thing that I've seen over and over again is that a lot of a lot of female leaders will will silently overperform, but they won't yell off the rooftops about it. A lot of men, just by habit of how we're raised in schools, in the workplace, are taught to be louder and noisier and talk about their achievements a lot more. And if all you're doing is going off of the obvious, you might miss the person that's silently overperforming in the corner and that person will get sick of being overlooked and they'll leave. So I think being a really metrics-driven organization um, helps with that because it, sh it shouldn't be about who the loudest voice in the room is. It should be about who's the individual getting the results. Yeah, absolutely. One of my last episodes was with a lady called Cindy Gallup and she's got some very interesting views on um, uh, female equality and, and something called sexual values in, in the, uh, in the workplace, which is, uh, which is very fascinating. Oh, interesting. Um, very interesting from a business perspective, but also from a parenting perspective, Yeah, which kind of leads me on to my next question. So you, you're a mother. Um, how has 
becoming a mother impacted your journey in business and, and how has it shaped your views on, on working in a business and founding and running a business? It's interesting because people ask this question a lot. Oh, do they? Okay. And I don't actually, I just, I haven't for me personally, it hasn't made a huge impact. I think I see it as like this evolution of my life where it's been awesome having a child. Um, I equally still love the business as much. And probably the only little thing that's changed is that you sometimes have a little bit less patience for mm -hmm. complaining and whinging and things like that, mm -hmm. because you're mm -hmm. like, oh, I've had no sleep and, you know, yeah. all, <laughs> all of that. But um, I think, you know, day to day, I, I wouldn't say it's made an impact. I think the two are really, really nicely in parallel. But one of the things I do think becoming a parent helps you do is become a little bit more empathetic. Um, I think it just makes you relate to people that have families and what their priorities are and time management. And you just, you just become so much more efficient and able to get work done. Um, one of the things that we've always done in LNA is we've always had a flexible workplace. So we've always said, you know, get your work done when and where you need to, as long as you're getting the results. Obviously, you know, you need to be there for client meetings. You need to be there for client calls. But some people work better at night. Some people work better in the morning, you know, and, and we're all grown ups. We just we're here to do a job and we want to do a great job. And as long as you get it done, great. Um, and I think since having a child, I've just valued that ethos of flexibility so much more because now we're at the point where we have quite a lot of, you know, women with kids and men with kids and all sorts of like families starting in the company, whereas we've all kind of grown up together. We, we haven't had that previously. So that's been really, really refreshing and seeing how they thrive in our environment has, has been really great. And I'm really proud of that. I think there's um there's just about every mother will agree about the efficiency point and and also the um the, how helpful it is to have that flexibility when when you you know kind of embark on the journey of children. Um Gina thank you so much. Um it's been so great to hear your story. Um I've got one final question that I ask all my guests before you go. After looking back I'd also like to look forward and ask what's exciting you about the next 12 months. Well, we're actually in the process of now, well, two things. One, we're in the process of integrating with a company that's bought us as a group, which is Dentsu. So for us, I think the next 12 months are going to be incredibly exciting as, you know, we kind of grow from scaling the social offering through APAC to hopefully globally and beyond and really, really start to kind of grow the level of work that we're doing. Um, for me personally, I think it's just continuing to see how we evolve our culture and how we evolve our people into the next round that we do. But also, you know, I'm so passionate about the culture space, continuing to kind of help help others and help other companies see how they could use culture and culture habits to increase their profitability, to build a really great solid business that also adds value to the world. Absolutely. Can't agree more. Gina. Thank you so much for being on Inflection Points. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. SI Partners is a leading corporate finance boutique for agencies, consultancies, and technology providers at the forefront of the digital economy. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Joe Hine, and you've been listening to Inflection Points.